Have you ever experienced somebody proselytizing, uh, sharing their faith, that just seemed mad about it? It seemed mad as they were, uh, that they were doing it. I, I, I can think of a few times in my life where this has happened. One of them was September the 1st of 2009. And you're like, man, that's a really good memory you have. Yeah, probably not. Um, I remember because I was home. Uh, John Owen had just been born. And so I went home to take a bath and shower and get some things and go back to the hospital. I was like on cloud nine. And the doorbell rings, and it's a couple of Jehovah's Witness. And I'm like, ah, oh, sweet. Hey, how are you doing? You know? And I'm just like, I'm just thrilled to be alive. Like, I am literally on cloud nine. It's like the biggest, one of the biggest moments of my life. And, and they are at the door, and they've kind of got this posture, and their heads are down, and they're like trying to talk to me. And it sounds like I'm talking to Eeyore. And I'm going like, all right, well, let me share why the gospel is good news with you, you know, and I was probably really annoying, and they probably left, like, really discouraged, more so than when they got there, and they thought, that dude just is weird. I was just, like, on cloud nine and loving Jesus. I remember another, another um, and since I was on a, a plane, I was headed back from Brazil, I had been on a, a two-week uh, mission trip, and there were some Mormon missionaries who had been on their two-year mission, and they were so thankful to be heading home. And then I hear them like talking uh, about what a horrible experience they had and how they hated to do it and how they could not wait to get out from under it or whatever. And so I like, okay, let me engage in this conversation. Now, the third one I think a lot of these people up here have experienced. Um, the stump at CSU. Uh, you can be in the plaza on CSU's campus and you can walk by... Uh, the free speech stump, and there will be people standing on it who seem like they are mad at the world, preaching, God loves you, <laughs> and it sounds like God hates you, and uh, it's bad, and guess who stops and listens? Other mad people. Other mad people who are hurt stop, and they listen, and guess what they do? They yell back. You're a bigot, you know, and like, well, probably right. Um, <laughs> you sound like a bigot up there on, on that stump. And, and it's really interesting uh, how it happens. If you've ever been on campus and seen it, it's really sad what, what happens around uh, the stump. Uh, Buddy Sampson and I used to go up there, and we would engage students kind of on the corners. We would often engage the preachers. And we, we, we joked and said we wanted to, to get... Uh, shirts made that said clanging cymbals, and we just wanted to take cymbals up there, and anytime they got up there and started preaching, just start beating on them. Because in, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if you have the truth and have not love, you're a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, and that's just what they, they were. Here's the, here's the reality, that a lot of people in those circumstances, while they have no joy in sharing the good news that they think they're sharing as they're proselytizing, while they have no joy is because they are doing it out of duty. They're doing it because they think they have to in order to go to heaven. Rather, the Christian ought to do it not out of duty, but out of delight. This is the truth of the gospel. That while we were sinners, meaning while we were in rebellion against God, 
And while we had hatred in our heart towards God, when we stood and we shook our fist at God and said, you'll not be Lord over my life, I'm Lord over my life. In his loving mercy, in his kindness, he led us to repentance. In our rebellion of him, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So that those who hated him, who wanted him killed, wanted him murdered, could actually be saved and have a relationship with him, to be reconciled to God. That is the good news of the gospel. So when we tell that good news, we, we tell it from a place of, God saved me. I was far from Christ. I was far from God. I wanted nothing to do with Christ. But in his mercy, he did not give me the punishment that I deserve, but rather chose to love me and be gracious to me, and he saved me. And that is good news, friend, and he will do it for you too. He'll do it for you too. That is the good news of the gospel. So, Christians ought to be joyous people. And sharing the good news of the gospel ought to be a delight. It ought, it's not something we have to do. It's something that we get to do. And so, as we approach this text today, here is the big truth that I hope that you'll walk away with. And it's this. That there is no greater joy than knowing Jesus and serving him. There is no greater joy than knowing Jesus and serving him. Last week... Uh, we were in uh, chapter 9, in those, those last verses, uh, we talked about the cost of following Jesus. And there were three examples where Jesus says to people, follow me, in three examples where they have, had excuses and reasons that they didn't. So if you'll just turn your eyes back up in your Bible uh, to chapter 9, verse 57, I, I, if not, I'll read along here. I'll show you these three examples just in memory. Remember, when we, we look at the Bible, we're not pulling it out of context. We're reading it in context, right? The context matters. And so, you know, prior to this, Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples. He had called followers to himself. He's talked about the, the cost of following him. And so he says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And this iconic statement, this iconic reply of Jesus is this. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was a hard statement. That was going, hey, if you're going to follow me, this is what it means. To another, he said, follow me. The man said, Lord, but let me first go and bury my father. Now, the context of this, this, was a, this wasn't an actual dead man. This was a, a dying old man who had out his uh, years of life to live before he died. In all probability, that's what we're talking about here. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But for as you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Man, that's a hard statement. Yet another says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say, well, Farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
These are hard statements of Jesus of what it means to follow him. Now, I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. If you didn't hear it, I, I would invite you, go listen to that sermon. Put some context in it. It would, it would help you to understand what it means to follow Jesus. But I, I want you to hear the big truth from last week as we approach today's text. Salvation is free. That means there's nothing you can do to earn it, to buy it, to deserve it. You can't buy salvation. You can't earn favor with God. Salvation is free, but following Jesus will cost you everything. Your discipleship costs you your life because you say, Jesus, you are Lord, which means you are ruler, you are king, you are the boss of my life. Now, discipleship will cost you everything, but listen to me. It is worth it. Every penny you will pay as a follower of Jesus is worth worth it. So, that being said, let's get into today's text and begin to take it apart. Um, not going to read the, the whole passage. I'm rather going to do this in sections, kind of as we go along. This is a long text. It's 24 verses, so we're going to take it apart in sections. After this, the Lord appointed 72 Others and sent them on ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, verse two here is really, I mean, our church is built on Luke 10 2. I'll talk about this more in the end, but this is what you need to know, that going back to October of 2016, uh, we started praying Luke 10-2 every day at 10-02. Alarms, Buddy and I set alarms on our phones, we asked other people to set alarms on their phones, and we began praying this, Lord, raise up laborers to, to answer the call to plant Overland Church, and we've continued to pray it. It's, it's our, our church literally is built on this. And I want you to understand something. It's not just our church. It is, this, this is true within the church planting movement. Um, I know a missionary in Denver. His name's Dave Howeth. And he has been praying this verse for years and years and years. And he's seen the Lord answer this prayer over a hundred times. That he's, he's been prayed and he's asked that the Lord would bring laborers to the field. So we're going to talk about that in a specific application, but where we're starting right now as far as what I'm about to break down is here in verse 3. So Jesus says to the 72 that he's sending out, go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking uh, what they provide for the labor deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, let's just go. Let's see who wants to volunteer for this. Go 
your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, just do that imagery in your head. Think of a pack of wolves and put a lamb in the middle of it. How does that turn out? Who's signing up today going, I'll be the lamb. Sign me up. No, like, don't you get, like, you see this beautiful white coat, and all of a sudden you see that coat turn bloody, and you visualize a, a wolf with, with sheep in his teeth, don't you? Right? It does not sound good. Carry no money bag. So take no money with you. You're basically saying, hey, you, you, you have no home to go with, so take no provision either. Right? You're, we're sending you out no money, no provision. Uh, no knapsack, so no, no sleeping bag, no, nothing to, no, no tent, no shoes, no extra clothes. That, that's how you, you get to go. Um, I've taken a lot of people on mission trips, especially teenagers. Um, it's funny, they all take 50 pounds. You will never take a teenager on a mission trip to another country where it's not exactly 50 pounds, right? Um, sometimes it's at the airport and you're like, like you look at the parent, like, why didn't you weigh this at home? It's 57 pounds, right? You, like, it's somehow they all end up with 50 pounds. He's saying, take, take nothing, no extra clothes. Like, some people, I know, if you were going on a mission trip, you'd pack everything under the sun. You'd think of everything. Um, at this point in my life, I, I can be going on a 10-day trip to another country. Guess when I pack? The morning of. Not lying, Emma Jennifer. Nope. Um, it, it's like, no, you, you, it's not because I'm spiritual. It's because I'm a procrastinator. Here he's saying, no, you don't go take it. He sends them out with urgency. There's an urgency to it. Like, hey, this is important. You can't even talk to people along the way. You have to go and be about this task. And you need to go and look for people of peace. You're not really going to meet anyone. You're just looking for a person. You'll know them when you see them. Well, that sounds reassuring. Who wants to, who wants to go out looking on a mission, but you're not real sure who the mission is? You have no contact there. In, in missiological terms, we, we talk about this often, that you're looking for people of peace. Now, here's my big idea. Here's what I'm going to pull from this text. God cares for his servants. Wait a second. How do you read that and think God cares for his servants? Well, because God is the one in charge of the mission. He is going to provide every need. He's going to show them that in this mission, you are not doing this in the power of yourself. You're not doing this in the power of an institution. You are doing it in the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you from the wolves. I'm going to send you out without your needs being met to meet the needs of other people. And that only happens in the kingdom of God from a powerful God. He's going to provide peace. He's going to provide the people of peace. He's going to meet the need over and over and over. I've gone on a lot of short-term mission trips. I've gone I've been sent out similar to how the 72 are uh, sent out, but I will tell you, none of that compares to the call in my life of answering the call to plant a church. And there I was, 
12 years in staff at an established church plant and a great church with people that we loved and tell them that we were going to plant a church, uh, some of the questions that were, that were asked from, from a lot of little sweet old people, little sweet old ladies would ask me questions that I would just like kind of go, huh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Stuff would happen of like, so who's going to be in your congregation? I don't know. Where are you going to meet? I don't know. Are you going to get a building? I don't know. Where are you going to live? I don't know. Over and over and over. But it was a step of faith that we would, we would answer the call to go. I, I would tell you, one of the, the most scary things about answering the call of God, of, of being sent, a sent people, is the unknown. It's that you can't know what you don't know. And so it's a step of faith. Following Jesus is, is, a, is a thing of answering calls to faith. Where are you going to live? That was a question. How are you going to afford a house? People, people where we came from, they knew uh, that it was expensive to live here. When Jennifer and I bought our first house in Kentucky, we bought it for $105,000. Do you know what you can buy for $105,000 here? A truck, right? You can, buy, you can buy a truck. We could live in a truck. That's what we could buy. You're going to live in a truck? Um, no. What, what are we going to buy? The Lord, the Lord and His sovereign goodness, man, he, he made all the dominoes fall. That we put our house on the market. We, we did it for sell by owner. We couldn't afford a real estate agent. Right? We needed every dime. We lived in a market where people would come in and, and they would start off at like twenty to 25000 under asking price. Knowing that we're moving to a market where you, you better be over twenty-five or thirty thousand to get a house, right? And so there we are. Guy comes in an hour before our open house and offers us cash, like here asking asking price cash, no realtor. We move here, we buy a house for twenty thousand under asking price, and the Lord just along the way made things happen. They all fell into place. Can I tell you that when we bought our house? Uh, we, we had no clue where our house was. We just knew it was in Fort Collins. And like it's six-tenths of a mile in that neighborhood. We had no, we, we moved in July of 2017. It wasn't until October of 2018 that Southside Baptist Church approached us and said, hey, we're, we're dying as a church. Would you like our building? The Lord in his sovereign, sovereign hand and sovereign plan knew that this was, there was going to be an empty building here that needed a vibrant live congregation in it. We didn't know that. He, he put the Sampsons just over there in that neighborhood. The Cancocks who moved here, they lived 300 yards in that direction when they moved here. We had no clue, but the Lord did. God cares for his servants. And so when I talk to international missionaries, when I talk to my friends who, who are overseas, when I talk to my other church planning friends, this is what I will tell you is that God's grace is sufficient and that he cares for his servants. I would get asked one question over and over, though, that I felt like I had a good answer to. They would say, Zach, what if you move there and no one comes to faith? What if you move to plant a church and no one listens? Well, that's a real simple solution. It's a real simple answer. Listen in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town... 
and they, not, they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so he's telling them, he's, telling, he's sending his 72 out. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and he is seeing who is receptive to him. Who will receive Jesus as Lord? What town? So we're not just talking about individuals. We're talking about towns. We're talking about groups of people. And it's, we've already seen in the scriptures that, that some re- reject him. We see it. We, see, we saw it just last week, a, a, a Samaritan village that rejected Jesus, that didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so he says this, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, Sodom, uh, we, we get this from the Old Testament. You've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was a, a city that had gross sexual sin. And so he's saying for Sodom, whom he burnt up with like hellfire and brimstone, they received the justice, the wrath that they deserved, and God burnt them up. They did unspeakable, deplorable things. And he's saying, for these cities that reject Jesus, it will be worse. And so he says, woe to you, uh, Chorizon. Woe to you, Bethsidia. For if the mighty work done... Mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And so now he brings up these other two two cities, Tyre and Sidon. What happened in those cities, man? They were they were struck with greed. Greed was was the thing that was their their, their sin. They would do anything for money. What they actually did, uh, you can read about this in Joel. You can read about this in Isaiah. Is that they took Jerusalem, uh, sorry, rather, Israelites, Jewish children, and they enslaved them, and then they sold them into slavery. And so their sin is greed and human trafficking. And he's saying it's going to be better for those cities than for you. If, If they would have had Jesus come to them, if they would have been warned the way that you've been warned... If they would have seen the mighty hand of Jesus in his, in his healing and his preaching, they would have repented and they would be sitting in, and this is what we see, the ceremony of repentance of sackcloth and ashes that we see in the Old Testament. It's signifying brokenness, being undone over their sin. And so what was their sin? What did Teresa uh, and Bethsidia do? Do you know what? The greatest sin in the Bible is the worst sin that you can do. You know, people people often think that there are, that all sins are equal. It's just in fact not true. The greatest sin is unbelief. That's what we see in the Bible teaches that the greatest sin that you can commit is unbelief. And so then in their unbelief, in them not believing. That Jesus was Lord, not believing that Jesus was God, they rejected him. And you, Capernaum, we already see kind of what happens with Capernaum. You will be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. Some of you are like, man, this sounds harsh. You know, this might be the only time that I tell you to do this. 
Put yourself in God's shoes for a minute and just think for a minute that you're God in heaven and you're looking down on a very corrupt people. Just think that you're looking down on America and you look at our sin and our, our greed and our sexual Im- immorality and you look at the, the, the divisiveness and you look at the corruption in our world. Do you realize that, that for, from God's seat, it is, it is mercy that he's giving us right now? It is not his justice. It is not his wrath. It's his mercy. Because if you look at the world around us and you look at the deplorable things that happen in our world that we say are good, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to look like Sodom and Gomorrah. But yet God in his love for us and his mercy for us has spared us and he is tearing. He is, he is not returning. He is allowing his people uh, to be a voice of gospel proclamation of the good news so that more people have the opportunity to repent. And so then he says this. The one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Here's my next big truth, big idea rather, is that gospel proclamation is the responsibility of those who serve Jesus. Salvation is from the Lord. That means it's not our responsibility to save somebody. You can't save someone. You aren't Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is, is, is the one who calls us to repentance. It's the Christian's responsibility to proclaim Jesus. Gospel proclamation is the job. The book of Romans chapter 10, we, we read Romans 10 to start the service. Started off in verse 9. In verse 9 it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, you will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. That means that it is an act of belief. right? So if the greatest sin is unbelief, the, the thing that saves you is, is belief. It's the, the farthest thing from sin is belief in Jesus. Because you're saying... It's not me who has the power to save, it's Jesus who has the power to save. Then it goes on, and and Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That those who bring the gospel, like, they're they're a blessing, those who bring the gospel. But he, he poses this question, how are they to believe unless they've heard? How are they to believe? How, how can someone believe if they've never heard? Well, then, how can, how can someone hear unless someone's been sent to preach? And there's where the statement comes, how beautiful are the feet of those who've been sent. How beautiful are the, the feet of those who bring good news. It's a beautiful thing. But then what does he say? He quotes Isaiah, and he says, but they have not all obeyed. That means... That when those beautiful feet brought that good news, that some people rejected that good news. That is the, that is, that is the facts. So, when we go 
and we share the gospel, we have to realize it's not our share, it's not, it's not the result of our sharing. It's the faithfulness in our sharing. It, it's not if someone comes to Christ, it's the fact that we were faithful in the sharing. That, that is our responsibility. The results are up to God. And so, so often in churches, we, have, we get this wrong. We, we, we've changed the scorecard, and we've not looked at the Bible for, for hey, what is success? But rather, we've, we've used uh, worldly means and worldly measures to define what success in a church is. So when I get asked the question, what if nobody listens? My, my response is, it's okay. Because my my goal is faithfulness. My goal is gospel proclamation. My, God is to do, my, my goal is to do what God has called me to do. The scorecard in, in churches has been changed to butts, budgets, and buildings. That's, 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 the, that's the scorecard. How, uh, baptisms. There you go. That's what I meant. Baptisms. Budget, budget baptisms. There's four. Sometimes there's three. Depends who you're talking to. Church, plan, church planners... Church planners add the building. Uh, they're like, oh, I need a building. It's how many butts can we fit in a seat? How many people can we get in a room? How, how, many, how many can we pack in so that we can say our, our church is growing? What's our budget? Like, if we're going to hire staff, if we're going to build buildings, we've got to have a, a budget. And man, how many people we baptize? That, that matters. Numbers matter. Baptisms matter. Well, yeah, they, they do. But when those, th- those three things are the scorecards, it's almost as if we take God's movement and God's Holy Spirit out of the equation to say, okay, I can control those things by, by providing a good service to you. Um, your Sunday morning experience is going to uh, matter. You'll, you'll hear those things. And here's, here's what happens. P- people begin to be manipulated. And so... Whatever it takes to fill the tank, whatever it takes to get people in the water so that we can say that our church is doing X, Y, or Z. And so, man, who's ever been a part of a service where, you know, 80s and 90s, where it would be, hey, close your eyes, bow your head, say this prayer, raise your hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Who's ever looked up to see if there are really people raising their hands? Like guilt, like peeking, you're peeking, you know? It's like, is he making this up, you know? And then other things have happened. We kind of moved in this church growth movement to spontaneous baptisms where we would, we would do things to say, okay, we're going to see how many people we can baptize in a weekend. And next thing you know, you, you see these churches who've put these people in places that they would, they would say, okay, now, you're, you're part of the counseling team or whatever, but this is what, when we do this altar call and we say to stand up and walk, you stand up and you go to that aisle and you walk down and you walk to the baptism. And what they created was followers they're they're going oh this works if we do this this the first person doesn't have to stand up and come that the the first person doesn't have to be brave that we'll get these other people down here and we'll get them baptized and and they'll baptize them and they just got wet because they had no clue what it was that they actually did i I, i've watched this with my own eyes in this very town they throw a mic uh, up to the person getting baptized, and why are you getting be ba- ba- why are you being baptized today? And they say it, and they're dunked under, and you're like, well, he didn't just say Jesus was Lord; he just said he wanted to to be re-cleansed from his sins. Well, that ain't it. And so, 
if we, don't, if we take away God's sovereignty in salvation and we put it on us, we will begin to do things that manipulate the results. Rather than backing away and go, we're going to faithfully proclaim the gospel. We're, we're going to, in, the, in, in love, we're going to tell the truth, but we're going to leave the results up to God. And so, there's this thing that we have to balance here of, what is our responsibility and what is God's responsibility? Listen to this. The 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the de- demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's my next big idea, is that we should rejoice in our salvation and the salvation of others. That's what we rejoice in. So the 72 return, and they do have joy. Lord, the demons were subject to us. We healed people and they were healed. We did these things and and it happened. We had power and authority. And Jesus kind of gives them a rebuttal and corrects them. This happens. By the way, this happens in other other places in Scripture. We see this happen with, with other gifts, tongues, prophecy. We see Paul have to make the correction to say, no, we're we're not rejoicing in our, our gifting. We're rejoicing in what Jesus did at salvation. And so he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've seen these things. I've, I've had authority. I've given you authority. Yes, I have. This kind of mimics Mark chapter uh, 16 um, with, with the, the tread on serpents. We see that. We don't see scorpions anywhere else, but we see that there's power over the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Don't rejoice in that, though. Rejoice in that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. And this is the motive for the Christian to evangelize. This is the the motive for us to proclaim the gospel is that I was a sinner in need of a Savior and he saved me. Now I want that for you. I want you to have the opportunity to know Jesus the way that I know Jesus. That becomes the motive. Verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Here's the next big idea. We should rejoice in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in salvation. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His plans are higher than our plans. His ways are are higher than our, our ways. Here we see uh, this, this tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
And we feel this tension. We often wrestle with it. But listen, these two things aren't in tension against one another. We make them that way in our hearts, in, in our little feeble minds of being able to understand it. And so, man, do I know why those cities rejected Christ? No, I don't. Do I know that he is just in what he gives them? I do. Do I think that I'm deserving or any other city was deserving of God's grace? No, I don't. I realize that if I got what I deserve, I would, got, I would get the full, be getting the full wrath and punishment of God. But the good news of the gospel is that he is gracious. And that he gives his unmerited favor to those who believe. To those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised their son from the dead. He gives them grace. And so what I get from this passage... For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. He's saying this to the 72 of the disciples. And did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear. And so for us in the New Testament with the Bible and the Holy Spirit who, who has revealed this to us and moves in works in our hearts. What we see is this plan of God unfolding before us. And though we can't understand all of it, we should rejoice that he is a sovereign good God. That he is in control. And if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, today you should be rejoicing that God saved you. You should be thankful. Your joy should go, I was a sinner. I had a debt I could not pay, and Jesus Christ paid it for me. That then becomes the motive. That becomes why we share the gospel. So now, let's go back up and deal with verse 2. And he said to him, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's my last big idea, is that we should pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more servants to proclaim the gospel... So that God may be glorified and so that many may experience the joy that can be found in Jesus. That's a mouthful. But this is, this, is, this is what we ought to pray and why we ought to pray it. Because if you have been saved, if you have experienced the joy that is in Jesus, you should want others to be able to experience it too. And if you live in this world and you look around and you see all the people without Christ, without the joy of Christ... Living in this lost and dying world, you should then realize, hey, there's not, enough, there's not enough laborers. Sometimes I get asked the question, do we really need another church? Zach, you talk about church planting and putting church plants around. Do we really need a lot of another church? I would say, I don't know, do we really need more Christians? Do you really want to see more people come to faith in Christ, do you really want more people to have what you have? Then the answer to that is yes. We need more churches. You know, when we first moved here, we, we like really began to, to like look around and go, hey, where are there gaps? Where are there not churches? This is what I realized once I moved. You can plant a church across the street. You can go find the biggest church in Colorado, the most successful church, the church that's seeing God pour out His Spirit. They're seeing baptism, legitimate gospel 
preaching, disciple-making church and plant the church across the street because there are enough lost people here to go around. And that's not just true here. It's not just a front-range thing. That is a world thing. If you begin to look around and you begin to study the world and you begin to study God's movement in the world, what you're going to see is that the world is full of people who need Jesus. And so this becomes the prayer. So this is what I would invite you to do. I've, invi- I've, I've invited our church to do this multiple times. But I would invite you to set an alarm for 10.02. Now, we're not the only church who does this. By the way, there's a lot of churches who do this, a lot of pastors who do this, a lot, that, that a lot of, especially in the church planning world, that believe this. Monday through Saturday... You can do that if you have it. I don't know about other phones, but on an iPhone, it's pretty easy. You can like set what day the alarms go off. Set it for 10.02. You can make it even this quiet little alarm that reminds you to pray this very simple prayer. Lord, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Lord, will you raise up laborers for the harvest? Set your phone for that. Pray that. Now, when you begin praying that and the Lord pricks your heart, You need to answer the question, how am I part of this labor force? How am I serving him? How am I answering this call? Whether it's to your children or to your neighbors, your co-workers, your extended family members. Or maybe it's to be raised up in some some way. In our church, we have a servant leadership pipeline. And so you're a volunteer, you're a leader, you're a director. We have different areas of ministry to be raised up and trained in one of those. The ultimate goal for us is we want to plant churches. We see the need for gospel preaching churches all around as we went to plant them. We want to train and equip people here so that they are, when they go and be a part of a church planting team, that they're equipped and ready to go, that they're ready to use their gifting. So there's many different ways that we, disciple, we make disciples in our church and we train servants. And so we've got Bible study groups. We've got uh, community groups. We've got one-on-one discipleship. This fall, though, we're launching something different. We're launching a servant leadership cohort. So for those who really want to dive in and be trained for the harvest. Those who may feel some sort of call to a specific area of ministry. Maybe it's worship ministry. Maybe it's church planting, preaching, student ministry, kids ministry. Women's ministry, men's ministry, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the Lord's put on your heart. Maybe it's just to be able to go and be a part of a church planting team. Wednesday nights, uh, starting in September from 6 to 7.30, and it's going to be 24 weeks long. We're going to cover all sorts of stuff from uh, character, leadership, uh, hermeneutics, uh, teaching. Uh, there'll be a, a spot for men who, who are called to, feel called to preach, to, to train in preaching, Old Testament, New Testament, theology. Be a part of being raised up as being part of the harvest. Pray that prayer and answer the call. Now, I know this. I know that there's some of us here today who, who man, there's some of you today who've never believed the gospel. I want you to think about it this way. You're not here today by accident. You're you're not here today to hear the good news of Jesus by accident. God had a hand in it. You're you're sitting here today with your ears to hear this message because God is calling you. Do not reject him. 
Do not be like one of those cities that wanted nothing to do with Christ, but rather confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead and be saved. The Bible teaches us once we place our faith and trust in Christ, the way we tell the world to do that is by water baptism. Baptism by immersion after faith. And so we paint a picture for the world that says that that baptism is a tomb, that water is a tomb. And we're saying we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who lives, but it's Christ who lives in us. And it says that we go under that water, that we're being buried with Jesus in baptism, and we're raised to walk this new way of life. We're being raised as a Christ follower. So today, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I invite you to do some. Talk to Brandon or I. We'd love to sit down and talk with you about baptism and then take the step in following him to be baptized. You'll never be a part of the harvest. You'll never be a harvester if you're not first fruit of the harvest. And so place your faith and trust in Christ today and take those steps of obedience. So, Father, we come to you today. Father, thankful for who you are and what you've done. Thankful that you in your loving kindness, sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we live in a world where many, many, many people are rebelling against you. Where many people are shaking their fists at you. And many people have hatred in their hearts towards you. And so, Father, we pray that you would save. And that you would do, th do so through the church. That you would raise up laborers, servants, to go into the mission field. To go out, to be sent ones to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that today that we would stand up as laborers and we would say that we surrender it all. That the cost of discipleship is worth it and we will follow you anywhere. That we would look and go, okay, foxes have holes and birds have nests. And we go, great, we won't either. That you would say, let the dead bury the dead. And you'd say, amen, let's go. Oh, you can't turn back and go tell your hometown, bye. All right, Jesus, we'll follow you anywhere. Let us be a people who surrender it all to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing a song of response.